thinking bigger, much bigger. We need to change this. We need to fix this. We need to create a new model of care delivery. Going to the experts for finding the gaps. How do you end up connecting that data so it's useful? We take back medicine. We can dramatically improve outcomes. Welcome to Healthy Conversations, the podcast, an open discussion amongst healthcare professionals about the latest innovations, what we've learned on the front lines of the pandemic, and how our industry is changing in real time. I'm Dr. Daniel Kraft, and here in conversation today with Dr. Rashika Fernandopol, the founder and CEO of Iora Health. Hey, Rashika. Hey, Dan. Great to see you again. And to see you. I mean, we go way back. Uh, seems just like yesterday, we were uh, interns at Mass General Hospital in internal medicine. The world's changed just a little bit but in some ways it hasn't. And you've certainly, uh, since we've known each other, done a lot to catalyze and transform healthcare. I thought just as a level set, we'd start by maybe, maybe share a little bit of your healthcare journey since we were residents together and how you ended up founding Iora and, and how it works a little bit. Sure. So, so as you know, I'm a primary care doc and uh, was in a typical primary care practice. Uh, and I think came the realization that the way we're doing this uh, despite largely good people and largely good intentions, wasn't working. It was fragmented, it's reactive, it's poor experience for patients and for doctors. It, the outcomes are poor, it's embarrassingly wasteful, there are huge disparities. I remember actually a moment at Mass General where I was seeing patients and really busy running like a hamster on a wheel. They're the new really crappy EHR that they put in that made the doctor be the code monkey. I remember staying late after work for two hours on a February night in Boston while my family was having dinner at home and I was finishing my charts and a colleague looked at me and she said something very profound. She said, Rushika, every day I lose a little piece of my soul. Every day I lose a little piece of my soul. We came into this to help people. They come to us with such big needs uh, and yet the system doesn't let us do it. And this is, this is a kicker. It's getting worse and not better. And I think that's when I decided we need to change this. We need to fix this. We need to create a new model of care delivery that was focused really on sort of health and not on doing more stuff to people. That was really consumer centric, had a great clinical model, leveraged technology the right way. And I realized to do that, we had to just simply start over. And I think we've learned a ton on this journey. Just a couple of things. One is the payment model has got to be different. Uh, we do not work in what's called fee-for-service, which is how most healthcare works, where you get paid per thing you do. Guess what that does? It encourages you to do more things to people. It actually, ironically, discourages you from making people healthier. You know, number two, then completely change the delivery model to really help consumers execute on their plans, right? What, what you and I do as docs is we tell people what to do. That's mildly interesting, right? People come to my, me in my office, and I will say in my seven-minute visit, you, Dan, should eat less, exercise more, take your medicines. Good luck, sucker. I'll see you in three months. And you come back in three months, you bad, bad, non-compliant patient, right? I said, no, we need to help people actually do this. And we've evolved a team model with not just docs, but health coaches from the community picked for empathy, hold people's hand where that's the right thing to do, kick him in the behind where that's the right thing to do, integrate behavioral health, interact not just in person, but by email and text message and video chat, and have patients get together in groups, be reactive and proactive, uh, really a completely different model. Have you been able to sort of, sort of uh, measure even just like the clinician satisfaction in that sort of practice environment? Yeah, so, so we track what we call quintuple aim, actually, Dan. We've added one. So there, there was a thing called triple aim that Don Burrow and IHI came up with, which is the goal of healthcare ought to be better patient experience and then better clinical outcomes, healthier people, and then lower the total cost of care because we know how much waste there is. You know, then people have added over time a fourth aim, you call quintuple aim, which is joy in practice. And we've added a fifth, which is it needs to be economically sustainable, right? So 
quintuple aim. So we actually can show that we impact all five of those things, right? So patients really like this. They come to us in droves. They stick with it. This is a much better patient experience. We can dramatically improve outcomes. We can improve people's health. We can improve diabetes care and hypertension care and the like. We're operating in the 90, 95th percentile and all of those. We can dramatically lower the cost of care. Uh, the total cost of care is down by about 20%, 20%, largely through driving down unnecessary hospitalizations. And again, we can talk about why hospitals may not like this if you're making money out of filling hospital beds. But to be quite honest, if you're looking after the consumer, being in the hospital when you don't need to be is a really good thing. Hospitals are really dangerous places. If you need to be there, by all means, you should be there. If you don't need to be there, you should not be there, right? You should be somewhere else, anywhere else. Fourth is join practice, as you mentioned, our clinicians, you know, both doctors, nurse practitioners, as well as other people on the team really like this. I remember uh, early on, uh, Atul Gawande, the great New Yorker writer, came to visit one of our practices in Atlantic City, and he sat in on one of our huddles. And the first thing he noticed, he wrote me a note on a piece of paper, handed it to him, like, oh my God, people actually look happy here, which is shocking in a primary care practice in this day and age. And why? Because they're able to do the job that they train to do. Again, the opposite of every day I lose a piece of my soul. And then finally, we can really make the economics work if we can get the payment model right. Well, I think fascinating is your sort of team approach. Yeah, you can't just give someone a pamphlet and say exercise more, eat less. And so you've really integrated in coaching. Maybe describe how that sort of works and how that's uh, maybe evolved over the last few years. Yeah, so it's a really important part. Again, this is really an important difference. In the typical primary care model, typical healthcare model, I, the doctor, get paid for simply telling you what to do. Again, eat less, exercise, take your medicine, good luck, sucker. I file a claim for that. I get paid. I actually don't give a whip whether you do it or not. And actually, perversely, I don't really want you to do it. Because <laughs> if you do it and you're healthy, then I stop getting paid. That's not who we should work for, right? Last I checked, I took an oath to serve my patients, not the health plan, not the hospital. That's who we should be working for. We need people to help engage with consumers. The first and most important thing they do is they build relationships, right? This is all about behavior change. And people change behavior not because some computer tells them or they read a pamphlet. They change it because someone they care about wants them to. And now just being partners with the patient to then help them on their journey. So in healthcare, you kind of get what you incentivize, whether it's giving more pain meds or preventing readmissions. What do you incentivize? Is it hemoglobin A1Cs or less admissions or uh, better blood pressure control? At least for your whole clinical team, what kind of keeps them at the top of their game? I actually think people use money to incent behavior when they can't control culture, right? I think the best medical groups in the world, the Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, people like that, uh, they have decided we're going to control behavior through culture. The problem with using money to try and incent behavior is there are all sorts of unintended consequences for complex behavior and doing healthcare well is incredibly complex. Quintuple aim, they sometimes trade off each other, you know, teaching the test, all of these problems. I am petrified of trying to put in place, you know, really blunt financial instruments. So what we do is say, we're going to pay you a fair salary. We're going to give you a ton of data, how you're performing. We're going to let you compare yourself to other people. Right. By the way, as you know, doctors are very competitive. They don't want to be at the bottom of the table. They will work hard, but we don't tie money to it because the second you tie money to it, people start arguing about the data. And we say, no, we're going to control culture. Now, by the way, if, if you are not doing the right thing, the culture will spit you out. So have you learned what to measure in a sense to, to help move the needle in terms of outcomes since you really are value-based? So we have what we call the seven drivers of our business which we measure, right? So if we're going to be successful, one of the things, we need those tied to the quintuple aim, right? So you go to quintuple aim, you go back, what are the seven drivers? And those are things like retention rate of patients, 
really important, you know, growth rate. It has to do with, you know, how hospitalization rate, how often are people ending up in the hospital, our referral rates. It has to do with our team retention rates. Then each one of those drive back to what are the things that actually predict, predict that, right? So I think it's really important to have it. You would be really careful, A, not to pay attention to any one variable because you have to look at them in totality. And number two, you would be very careful not to use too short-term an impact right? You've got to think about this long-term. So again, data is really important. You've got to remember the reason you're doing it and use the data to identify sort of hypotheses, but not to try and answer the question. That's spot on. I mean, now the trick is many clinicians are overwhelmed by data. Any sort of lessons for, for folks listening about how to start thinking about the technology piece and how you do the sort of clinical workflow? Yeah, it's absolutely. So, so by the way, you know, a lot of, uh, as you know, there's a huge epidemic of physician burnout going on right now. Uh, and a lot of people blame the EMR, right? So if the electronic health record, if you ask physicians what the source of the EHR comes up near the top of the list, uh, I would actually argue, I can't believe I'm an apologist for EHRs. It's not their fault, <laughs> right? They are simply executing the stupid payment model that in for primary care, it's all about getting level four, not level three visits, being able to fill in 99214 code. And there's all this sort of stupid check boxes you have to do in order to get that. So that's, so again, it's not the EMR's fault, they're just executing the payment model. So if you think the job of the EHR is actually to improve outcomes and not generate higher billing codes, then what are some principles behind it? So one is, is we have to gather data about our patients from everywhere. If you think about it, trying to manage someone's hypertension with one number you get in your office every three months, it's completely asinine, right? Who cares what that number is? They probably have white coat hypertension and that's not even their real number, right? We need to get a stream of numbers from them when they're at home doing their day-to-day, -day, right? So that's, that's one, is get data in from their devices. By the way, get all their lab data, get the census data if they ever show up in an ER or a hospital, get the claims data from when they're filling their meds, right? So get a bunch of data. Number two is then generate insight from that data. Is their blood pressure going out of control? Did they fill that prescription you just did? And then the third, this is the most important, is then put those insights into the context of the relationship. It's a people and a data thing. And I think that's the way we have to think about this. Continuous data flow, generate insights. Don't give people a stream of data. Give them the insight and then put that insight into the relationship to allow you to actually change outcomes. What, would you, what advice would you have for other sort of docs who want to help move that needle, whether it's to value-based care, transforming their practice? Because uh, often it's hard to get out, your head out of the EMR uh, to do that. So first of all, is I think we have a huge role to play in what I call bearing witness to how crappy the current system is. This is not working for our patients. This is not working for us. Uh, it's not working for the system. So I think we, because we're, we're watching it at ground level, and, and telling stories, like the one I just, you know, I did, is telling stories, bearing witness is a huge role we could play. You know, second is I think we ourselves need to be part of the solution and be willing to change. People don't go into medicine because they're risk takers, unlike you, right? But in general, people don't go to medicine because they're innovative risk takers. They go into medicine because they want to take care of patients, you know, first to no harm. There's a strong conservative streak in healthcare. I think that's all well and good, but, but it's not working, right? So we ourselves need to be willing to change and try new things. And then finally, is I think in the end, we have both with our feet, right? If our institutions are not willing or able to change, we need to have the courage to say, we're going to vote with our feet, whether it's going to a new job, going to a new practice, you know, our patient, if I'm a patient or my mom is a patient, taking her to somewhere else, that's the only way I think we will change the system. Does one work for having doctors make more money, making the hospital have, have more beds? 
getting the pharma company to to sell more drugs, uh, et cetera. Right. So we said we're going to work for our patients, period, at the end of that sense. And, and, and the other stuff will work out. There'll be side effects. Number two is we have this interesting principle, when in doubt, do the more radical thing. So we get faced with two pods. The obvious thing is do, this, do the safest thing, but then you'll never know the more radical thing. So do the more radical thing. If it doesn't work, you can always do it. Try the other one. So a, a good example is we had built a lab interface early on where, you know, so our patients, by the way, from the very beginning could see their own medical record. We thought, you know, obviously they're in charge. They should see their own medical record. You know, so it's a question that we have built a lab interface with, I think it's Quest or LabCorp and the lab values were coming in. The question is, when should the patient see their lab values? A, uh, only after the doctor signs off on it. B, never, which is what most people do. C, is after some delay or D, right away. And people were stymied on, the, oh, well, what if it's something that they're done? And so I said, you know, the more radical thing, this is their data, last I checked. We should have them see it right away. And people were scared. I said, let's do what? Let's build in the delay, but let's turn the delay off for now. And let's just let it open and let patients see it themselves. And if it doesn't work, we can just turn the delay on, a two-day delay right away, and then we'll be fine. Everyone is okay with that. By the way, we've never turned the delay, right? Because it turns out that patients are fine. If they see something you don't like, they'll call you, right? They'll reach out. And the thing we tell our docs is, your patient will see the result the second it comes in. So if you want to talk to them about what that could be, you better have that conversation before you order the lab. So... Um... We're talking here in the, the fall of 2020. COVID is still uh, very much with us. Uh, you yourself were on the Bigelow Awards at MGH, you know, doing inpatient medicine. And how has COVID transformed your practice? And what has it catalyzed? And what do you think you're going to keep, hopefully, uh, post-COVID? I think COVID has shown that our payment model, this payment model of not doing fee-for-service paying by value, is hugely important. You know, what we and everyone else did, right, when COVID hit is realize we can't be seeing people in person for everything. So we spun down to about 8% of our visits being in person and the rest being by video or telephone. Number two is, I think, maybe more important, it, it allowed us to do the right thing. And the right thing was having a hybrid model. We kept every practice open. Are there a set of encounters which still, despite COVID, need to be done in person? Absolutely. If it doesn't need to be done in person, by all means, we should do it by video. So we should figure out also, by the way, how to do it in video for people who have trouble accessing the internet or devices so we can figure that out. There are a lot of people who've swung as fast as they could back to all in person. That's not the right thing to do, right? We need to use this as an opportunity to get the right care model. Individuals have some set of needs that are better done by a chatbot, some that are better done by video, some that are better done in person in an office, some we have to go to their home. What we should be building is an omni-channel experience where we can meet all those needs for a patient depending on what they have with the same relationship, same technology, same people, and tie them together, not be separate companies. And, you know, that's completely wrong. COVID has shown, so only 11% of Americans say that they have heard one word from their primary care doctor during the whole epidemic of what they should do in COVID. I think our medical system has dramatically failed us in COVID. Again, lots of good people, good intentions, but the system has failed us. And by the way, we'll have another one like these, right? I think that the thing that we've realized is this is this is not the last time that even you and I in our career are going to see something like this. Hopefully we'll get through it. Things will get better. There's another one of these things lurking around somewhere. <laughs> yeah, my friend Larry Brilliant calls this the, the practice pandemic in some ways, because the next one could be twice as infectious with twice the more, uh, mortality oh. rate. And I, I imagine you're starting to take in other data, not just from your practice, but uh, you know, the sociome or what, what the infection rates are or where the local testing facilities are. Are you starting to kind of blend uh, modalities in for your providers and your patients? Absolutely. So, so again, I think, uh, so example, COVID, COVID rates in localities matter a ton about how you react to various things. So we're pulling that in. We, you know, we have not pulled in sort of socioeconomic data about our patients, but we're talking about it. 
because that's a really important thing we ought to know. So, so I think in general, this idea of being able to get data from everywhere and then putting it into action is where we're going. Um, switching gears a little bit, how would you reimagine sort of medical edu education, you know, for any kind of provider and what could current practitioners do to kind of get themselves back up to speed into sort of learnings that you've had um, in general? So I think it's uh, a travesty that we are still teaching our trainees, whether they're medical students or residents, the old model of care, which is reactive, faxes, you know, all of those things. So, so a couple, couple months. So one is, you know, the fundamental job of a doctor at an IR practice is not a little different than the current job of a doctor. It's very different, right? So no more if you think we will have better and better technology, better and better sort of health coaches, et cetera, that the job of the doctor is to see every patient and make every decision, right? Now, what I tell a doctor is you're still in charge, <laughs> right? You're the most expensive person in the room. You are still accountable for the health of this population. So the way we think about our job is you are a population manager, you have X hundred patients, they're your problem. Now you don't have to do everything, right? Some of it is you need to oversee the data and you need to look at the data and figure out where to look. Some of it's you have to make the shared care plan for each patient. Some of it's you have to train and supervise the health coaches, right? So it's a data, it's a management, it's a training, it's a IT issue. And then you need to get in and intervene on an individual patient when you need to get in and intervene on a patient. So, you know, again, Great example, again, going back to the hypertension model, is you put people on a plan about hypertension, you have them monitored and check in with the health coach, you put them on escalating, you know, you start them with uh, ACE inhibitor and you add a base blocker. And, and in 80% of the time, that program will work fine. You don't need to pay any attention unless they go off the deviation. Now, it turns out, as you know, maybe X percent, two or 5% of the people, they won't follow the program. And it turns out they don't have essential hypertension. They've got a cork of the aorta. They've got a feel. They've got some other strange zebra. And what we as doctors ought to be spending our time on is those people, not the 80% of people who've got essential hypertension and the sort of stepped care model works just fine. So again, you've got to put them on the track, have people do it, have a data system be able to flag quickly, hey, this guy is not, quote, behaving normal. Now, my job as a doctor is step in and intervene. So it's a different job as a doctor. I don't think we're, tra we're training people for this. So I think we need to, A, start training people for the future. But even teamwork, and I, you, you know, when we're in medical school, you, you don't need anyone who's not a doctor. <laughs> you certainly don't work with physical therapists or whatever. You certainly don't have a lot of uh, insight into data or analytics or change management or any of those things. So, so I think we need a whole separate set of things we're teaching people. So let's, let's have fun. Let's leap forward to, uh, I don't know, uh, we, we think we're in the future 2020. It seems like we're still back to the future. But let's say, you know, healthcare 2030, arguably we're going to all have, you know, $10 genomes and metabolome and sociome all integrated in. How are you building your practice for that? And what might other practitioners do to sort of future-proof things a bit? I think the key thing that'll change between now and even 10 years from now, uh, you know, within our, well within our career is, is real personalized medicine. I know there's a lot of talk about that. I think it's happening. You, you know this, Ben, it's happening, right? We do a ton of medicine trial and error at the moment, right? So I think I need, to, I need to give you a drug for X. I want to try one, doesn't work, I'll try another, try another. Um, we make recommendations based on 51% of people in a trial having benefit and we give it to all 100%. It's ridiculous. Come up with an individualized plan and then treat each patient as a experiment end of one, right? So let's see if it's working, if it's not, then let's change it, uh, et cetera. That's the, the mental model we all need to have. Do you think, uh, so given the influx of of new forms of data, are you, are you able to architect your system to take some of those in, whether it's the microbiome or the behaviorome or all the internet of medical things? 
Uh, have you sort of learned, uh, you know, if you're cheating a millennial versus a baby boomer, how to mix that into the into the equation? So you're really providing this holistic element that that then can translate to another doctor or IR clinic across the country. Yeah, so one thing I think we're really bad at in healthcare is segmenting the population. So in some way, they're gonna say something very heretical. I actually think that trying to build a typical primary care practice, which does all things for all people, is an unwinnable game. So no restaurant in the world says, I'm gonna build a restaurant, I'll cook whatever food you want, I want Italian, Chinese, and Greek. You know, what we need to do is segment. So we have IR practices that focus on seniors. We, we may actually, Further segment that into sort of young seniors and old seniors, <laughs> right? The ones who are sort of not very tech savvy in the nursing home, and then there's the 65 to 75 year olds who, you know, you and I are not that far from that, unfortunately, right? Who are still working and, you know, active and whatever. So, point one is I think the way to do this, because you can't do everything for everyone, is to segment into a reasonable number. Now, again, the back end infrastructure, all the data, the analytics, the actual, the hard part needs to be scaled like hell, but the end unit that faces the customer maybe ought to be targeted so you can actually, so again, a simple thing, when we open senior practices, we can close them at 6 p.m. No one's gonna come to us at eight, right? That's early bird special. Whereas we open practices for younger people, like you're silly to be opening them at 9 a.m. No one's awake, right? You should be, you know, opening till 10 p.m., right? So I think different hours, different vibe, different locations, different staffing you have. One of the sort of perceptions you talked about having an older population is that they can't use technology. Maybe it's that connected blood pressure cuff or the app to track their meds and issues of sort of health equity, whether you have internet access or a smartphone. Have you found ways to bridge that? Will you loan someone a smart device? Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. So, so particularly given COVID, we think it's really important that we be able to digitally enable encounters with our patients as well as see them in person. So we have a number of things we do. So one is we do have a tablet loaner program where we actually loan or give people a tablet which is already linked to the internet. We have a program where we actually show up at their house with a tablet and help them. We do some Saturday hours so their kids can come over and help them, right? So it's a variety of things. Again, why are we able to do this? Because we have a payment model where if we keep it on the ER or the hospital, we get to keep that money. So it's a really simple math, like a hundred dollar, you know, Android tablet versus them going to the ER for a thousand dollars. What should I do? Like, of course I should give them the tablet, right? So, so it just makes it much easier when we can, be fungible about these sorts of resources. Any other sort of lessons in helping individuals become more autonomous and partners in their care? We should treat patients like apprentices. So how does that work? First, we do what they watch, then they do what we watch. Eventually, we sort of step back and let them do it. And we're the safety net. We just keep an eye on it. And only if it's going off the rails do we get involved. The goal has got to be for us to give them self-efficacy, for them to manage their health, because they will always be better at it than we are. Not because it's cheaper, because it's better. Yeah, the, the, the old Marcus Welby model of, you know, go to the doctor, they'll take care of it is certainly shifting. Uh, and it's yes. a big part of it. I, yeah, I step in my scale. If I'm up bad, I know what to do. It's like small data, yep. too. That can Absolutely. Be small data. It's not big data. Small data. <laughs> right, because the problem is we can do insights on big populations. That's fine. But the best insight is from you. Again, it's simple than diabetics. People for years, like, I know if I eat an ice cream sandwich, exactly how many units of insulin I need. It's, by the way, different than someone else needs. But I know myself, right? This is how my body works. Yeah, speaking of that, I just got a, a continuous glucose monitor for fun. I'm not diabetic, but it's really yeah. interesting to see the insights. And you're sort of, you know, response to certain foods. And you learn that. You don't need to be wearing the patch after that. You kind of got your sort of yep. food print. Now you know. Built. Yep. So speaking directly to you know, fellow healthcare providers, anything you sort of want to add that we haven't covered or, or lessons learned? So I think it's really easy to be scared of the future, right? Things are changing rapidly. COVID has sort of accelerated these things. Uh, I actually think the future is really exciting. 
I think that this new technology, sort of the foment around COVID, the foment around new payment models, sort of the existence of people like us at Iora, new delivery models uh, are actually really good, right? Could be really good. And I think done right can really enable us as docs, as other healthcare people to do what we train to do, right? And to actually take care of patients and not get caught up in the faxes and the codes and and all of that. So, so I think we all have a choice. We could sort of kick and scream. The, the present isn't working, right? We can kick and scream and resist change, or we can be part of the future, and that could be a much better path. Well said. Well, thanks, Yoshika, for everything you and your IR team are doing. You're certainly uh, not waiting for the future to arrive, but you're building it and uh, are helping sort of catalyze a lot of this new thinking and models and mindsets, which are really going to shift healthcare in the US and uh, around the planet. So, thanks for joining us on Healthy Conversations. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to Healthy Conversations, the podcast. It's our mission to reveal the front lines of the healthcare profession and to educate everyone about the challenges and opportunities in this new landscape of healthcare.